I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In 1929, the theoretical physicist Albert Einstein was very famously asked if he believed in God. His reply to this question is often quoted. He responded, quote, I believe in Spinoza's God, who reveals himself in the lawful harmony of the world, not in a God who concerns himself with the fate and the doings of mankind. This statement has later been parroted by great scientific figures like Carl Sagan, all seeming to find something worthwhile in it, and in this thing called Spinoza's God. But what is Spinoza's God? What did Einstein mean by his statement, and how accurate are discussions about this today? Spinoza, or more precisely Baruch Spinoza, was a philosopher who lived in Holland in the 17th century. He is often seen as one of the most significant philosophers not only of the modern period but really of all time. His ideas about things like God and other philosophical topics have influenced thinkers up to this very day. Born in Amsterdam in 1632 when into a Sephardic Jewish community, Spinoza quickly showed intellectual promise as a young man. He came from a moderate family background and as a young man he would help his family with their import business. His intellectual endeavors started early, as already in the first few years of his adult life, he seems to have already started to develop some of the unique and daring ideas for which he would become so famous later on. Some of these ideas did not go down too well with the Jewish authorities in Amsterdam, and in 1656, at the age of 23, he was excommunicated from the Sephardic community uh, for his so-called monstrous deeds and abominable heresies. Much speculation has been devoted to what specific reasons he was excommunicated for, but many will naturally argue that it had something to do with the ideas that he would later present in his philosophical writings. Because of this event, Spinoza left Amsterdam and lived periodically in various places across Holland, primarily settling in The Hague. For the rest of his short life, he would dedicate himself to developing his philosophical ideas, writing many literary works, and as a personal teacher, often doing so under the name of Benedictus or Benedict. Some of his works include the Theological Political Treatise and an exposition on Descartes' Principles of Philosophy all of which were pretty controversial at the time, but his greatest masterpiece, the work for which he would primarily become famous for and which would cement him as one of the most significant philosophers in the world, is The Ethics. Written between 1661 and 1675, and published only after his untimely death in 1677, The Ethics has become one of the classics of modern philosophy. 
Divided into five parts on various topics, the book is a masterful piece of philosophy that has also been very controversial and debated. In part one, Of God, Spinoza presents his arguments and ideas about God, ideas that, as we've seen, inspired people like Einstein centuries later. But Spinoza's ideas about God can be quite complex, and they aren't always as simple as they may appear at first glance. He is often associated with a philosophical or theological position known as pantheism, pan meaning all and theos meaning God, thus the idea that everything is God, or that God is everything. This is because of the common understanding that Spinoza identified God with nature itself, and we will get to this point soon. Now, this isn't incorrect, he certainly did do this in in a way, but scholars tend to agree that Spinoza's ideas aren't so crude, and there's a lot more complexity and nuance going on here. Spinoza can be quite hard to interpret, and this is the reason why there has, throughout history, been a lot of different understandings about what he was actually trying to say. Since he lived, he has often been called an atheist because of his supposed reduction of God to the laws of nature. On the other hand, the German romantics called him a God-intoxicated man. Both completely different characterizations, but both somewhat legitimate depending on the perspective you choose to view him from. But let's not beat around the bush anymore. What are the arguments that Spinoza presents in his first part of the ethics? What indeed is Spinoza's God? Now, keeping in mind what I have just said, that there is some disagreement and various understandings of how Spinoza should be read or understood, the basic outline can be said to look something like this. Spinoza talks about something called substance, a concept that goes back to Aristotle and which was used by philosophers up to his own day. Substance can be said to be something that is independent, something that doesn't require something else for its existence. Quote, by substance, I understand what is in itself and is conceived through itself. And according to most philosophers, including in Spinoza's day, there are many, many substances in the world. I have a substance, your cat has a substance, but to Spinoza, there is only one substance an infinite, perfect essence with an infinite number of attributes, of which all things in the universe are only finite modes. To Spinoza, this one substance, which is the totality of all existence, the kind of essence of reality itself, is God. He also uses the word nature and considers this word to be synonymous with the word God. Quote, By God, I understand a being absolutely infinite. In other words, a substance consisting of an infinity of attributes of which each one expresses an eternal and infinite essence. So right away, we can call Spinoza a monist, or more specifically, a substance monist. In other words, to Spinoza, there exists only one unified thing, that is, God, or nature, the substance of all things. But we shouldn't view substance as something material. We aren't talking about substance in the way that, for example, wood is the substance of a table. Instead, substance could be seen as the underlying reality of something, or in in this case, of all things. The substance, or, or God, in itself is not finite. It is infinite and exists beyond all limitations. 
This underlying abstract substance includes the material aspect, in fact it includes it as one of its infinite attributes, but it is not limited to it. And since there is only one substance, God, this means, obviously, that there is no other substance. Hence, everything that is, is a part of God in some way. This is the pantheistic facet of his thinking. Quote, Whatever is, is in God, and nothing can be or be conceived without God. But what does it actually mean to say that things are in God? Is he saying that everything are simply parts of a whole, the whole being God, or that they are properties of God in that way? This is one of those questions that has occupied scholars on the subject for centuries. But what seems clear is that Spinoza does in some ways differentiate between God and his attributes on the one hand, and the world on the other. While the former is basically what it is, it's God, the things of the world are described as being modes of God, or modes of God's attributes. Quote, From the necessity of the divine nature, there must follow infinitely many things in infinitely many modes. As we have seen, God is infinite in his essence and has an unlimited and infinite number of attributes, which are all identical to the essence of God, but expresses its infinite nature in different ways. And the modes which make up the universe are expressions of these attributes. In a line that strongly echoes mystics like Ibn Arabi, Spinoza says that the modes are, quote, affections of God's attributes, or modes by which God's attributes are expressed in a certain and determinate way. In other words, the infinite absolute substance that is God is expressed in limited finite form through the modes of the universe. In this way, everything is God. He identifies God with nature, and we can see how this naturally follows the earlier statements. Nature and its laws are simply direct expressions of God's nature as such. And when it comes to nature, Spinoza considers there to be two aspects or sides to nature. First, what he calls natura naturans, naturing nature, the active principle which causes everything else and which is directly identical to God or substance as creator. And secondly, there is natura naturata, natured nature. As the name suggests, this is the result of the first aspect, that which is produced by the active aspect, in other words, natura naturans. And this flows into one of the main points that scholars disagree on when it comes to Spinoza. Does he identify God only with naturing nature, or is God also identical to natured nature? This also becomes important for the question of whether or not he should be called a pantheist. So is God, in his essence, separated from the universe as being, in some way at least, as being the cause of the universe, and the universe being the modes or expressions of God's attributes, but still remaining somewhat distinct? Or is he also identifying God completely with the manifested universe as such? Some scholars will argue for the latter, that Spinoza completely identifies God with the created world as well. God simply becomes another word for nature as a whole, legitimizing them calling him things like an atheist. Others disagree. They point to many sections in the ethics where he seems to draw a more clear distinction between the two. God is the cause of the universe, that from which the universe flows, but there is a certain kind of difference. 
the universe becomes only the finite expressions or manifestations, the modes of God's infinite attributes, while God himself, being infinite, remains bigger than this limited manifestation or this limited expression. Can Spinoza then be called a pantheist? Well, if we go by the latter theory and also define pantheism as the complete identification of God with the created world or the totality of the world, then he doesn't really seem to fit very neatly into that category. Some have instead suggested that Spinoza should be termed a panentheist, a belief where God is immanent and present in all things, even identical to them in some way, but still transcends them in his totality. Spinoza's writings are sometimes cryptic, and it isn't always certain or clear exactly what he means, which has led to these disagreements among scholars historically and today. He is called pantheist, panentheist, a god-intoxicated man, and even an atheist. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on Spinoza in particular, and I'm not going to attempt to answer this question right now, but it shows us that things are a lot more complicated than how it may appear at first glance. What does seem clear to me is that Spinoza indeed places God as a central part of his philosophical system. The whole purpose of the ethics is to lead to the conclusion that one is to live in constant love for God. So why, with all of this in mind, why then is he so often called an atheist? Well, this is because there are certain aspects of his theology that still seems to really clash with classical theology as expressed in the Abrahamic religions. Indeed, Spinoza completely rejects any idea of a personal God. God is not a being who judges or cares about what you eat or how you pray. He doesn't even create the world willingly, but through the necessity of his nature. This is a denial of the God who answers prayers or speaks in the form of sacred scriptures. Spinoza even denies miracles, because everything in the world must follow the laws of nature. Now remember, God is nature, and if something was to break those laws, God would be going against himself, which would be ridiculous, that would be a a paradox. To believe in any personal God who interferes in the world or cares about the doings of mankind is superstition. Spinoza's God is abstract, philosophical, and impersonal. It is because of these views that Spinoza has been such a controversial figure, and it is the reason why he has been called an atheist. Since he denies that personal God, which, according to many, are central tenets of religious belief, many argue that one might as well say that he doesn't believe in God at all, and thus can be called an atheist. However, in my opinion, this is partly a result of a shallow understanding of the history and tradition of philosophy and theology. A lot of the time when Spinoza is called an atheist, it is based on a view that religions only conceive of God as a personal anthropomorphic being, and often fails to take into consideration the huge complexity and depth of theological traditions. And indeed, scholarship recognizes more and more that Spinoza was indebted to his predecessors, not only modern thinkers like Descartes, but also to medieval philosophers like Maimonides. Spinoza's view of God, while significant and unique of course, isn't unheard of in earlier philosophy and theology. As I mentioned earlier, the monistic ideas about a single eminent substance being the reality of the created world and identified with God can be found in thinkers, mystics like Ibn Arabi, for example. 
Similarly, ideas like the necessity of creation that God has to create the world because of his own nature rather than through individual will can also be found in philosophers like Ibn Sina and Maimonides, both of whom also denied most, if not all, anthropomorphic aspects of God, and yet none of those thinkers are usually considered atheists. For these reasons, I don't really see Spinoza as some radical thinker who revolutionized how we can understand God. Instead, I see him as following a long line of thinkers who speculated about God in philosophical and abstract language and who dared to be a little bold in his expressions. The main difference between him and some of the earlier philosophers and theologians from religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is how unequivocally he denied the personal God as mere superstition, whereas most of the earlier thinkers would try to incorporate that into their system in some way. Either through allegorical readings or some other argument, they would try to harmonize the paradox between the personal and impersonal understandings of God, whereas Spinoza chose to cut the ties between them completely. And that, I think, is where he can rightly be called radical. So, in conclusion, Spinoza can be viewed from many different perspectives. To In many presentations, like in the TV show Cosmos, for example, he's often presented as a champion of science and rationalism who stood up against the tyranny of religious superstition. This is, of course, a very strong post-enlightenment kind of rhetoric or thinking that I think fails to take into consideration a lot of the complexities of his actual philosophical thought. We can call him God-intoxicated, a pantheist, or even an atheist if we so wish, but if we limit ourselves to only one of these fixed conceptual frameworks, we might miss one of the things that are so exciting about people like Spinoza, that they are very hard to fit into a particular box. It's easy to understand why a person like Einstein would claim to believe in Spinoza's God. Hopefully the context of that original statement is now a little clearer. Spinoza offers a god that fits well into the modern scientific framework, one that can be inspiring even to staunch atheists. For this reason, Einstein adored Spinoza. So much, in fact, that he even wrote a poem about him. The poem isn't very good at all, but it serves as a testament to Einstein's appreciation for Spinoza and his intellectual legacy. The poem goes as follows, quote, How much do I love this noble man? More than I could say with words. I fear, though he'll remain alone with a holy halo of his own. You think his example would show us what this teaching can give humankind. Trust not the comforting facade. One must be born sublime. I'll see you next time.